If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I'm Jessica Fuentes. And I'm William Sarada. And today we're doing another uh, kind of mid to late fall roundup. So um, a lot has been happening in the past. I guess it's only been maybe a month and a half since we did one of these. But um, we've been traveling across Texas. Uh, A lot of news has been happening, and we've been seeing a lot of stuff. So we wanted to take a second and have the three of us kind of chat, catch up a little bit with each other, but also tell you about what has been going on and what is still going on this fall in Texas. Um, I can jump in and go ahead and start. Uh, So one of the things that I have been really... Uh, impressed and maybe a little bit surprised by over the past couple months is that there have been a a lot of new gallery openings uh, across the state, but particularly in Houston. So in the last, um, I guess, geez, just in the last two weeks, we have seen a new uh, for-profit gallery run by Aaron Dorn, formerly of McLean Gallery, called Seven Sisters open. Um, we've seen a gallery called, or an artist collective space called Throughline open. Um, that's over in the Isabella Court building, uh, right next door to uh, Carrie Inman's gallery. So this space used to be David Shelton's space when he moved to Houston. After that, it was Devin Borden's space. And now um, it's an artist collective, kind of in the model of Icosa Collective in Austin. Um, It's kind of being helmed by Sarah Sudhoff and uh, Jonas Crisco. But it has, I think, about 10 members now, people like um, Heather L. Johnson, Colleen Maynard, um, Luisa Duarte, a few others. And this was their inaugural show as this collective. Um, And then we've also seen 3131 Gallery, which is run by the Center for Civic and Public Policy Improvement, which is in Third Ward, kind of right around the corner from Project Row Houses. So uh, that plus, uh, we've seen a few others open across Texas, too. Jessica, you've been covering these and writing news about them whenever they've started to open. What are some of the others that we've seen? Yeah, so in Wimberley, Texas, we saw Project Art, which is a nonprofit art education space, open. Um, They have a student-run gallery, and many of their programs support Um, high school and college students and their learning and their path to be working in the arts world. Mm -hmm. And I think that inaugural show, I can't remember if it's still up right now, but the inaugural show was uh, done by Jules Buck Jones, who's 
I think he's calling himself the curator of the space. I believe this is him and his wife who are running this space. Uh, so aside from that, we also have some new things and developments happening in Austin. Um, as we reported earlier in the year, Big Medium was looking for a new space. And recently they opened with an inaugural exhibition in their newly opened gallery space in South Austin. Yeah, this is a significant move for them because Big Medium has kind of been holding it down um, as the quintessential East Austin art space for a long time. And they decided to move out of the Canopy Complex, which they were kind of like an anchor tenant in. Um, for anyone, you could kind of think about it as it, it was a big studio building. So in Houston, it'd be comparable to like the Winter Street building a little bit. Or um, is there a comparable thing in Dallas, William, Jessica, that y'all would kind of, you know, a big studio building that maybe has one or two spaces in it as well? It's kind of a hub for artists. Well, I mean, it's a good question. There's um, the I still think of it as relatively new because I've been in Dallas for a while, but it's been around for a few years. The Riverfront Complex um, in the Design District, west side of town, that's almost exclusively commercial galleries. There's Dallas Art Fair projects, Melixetian Briggs, which relocated from Los Angeles in the past year or so. Um, and now James Cope's gallery was there first before it was renovated. But regardless, um, that complex doesn't have like studio space. I'm thinking I'm thinking in Dallas, those things, unfortunately, are a little separated from each other. Well, you could almost picture it as if it's that complex, but also with artist studios. Because uh, Canopy in Austin was big medium. It was a few other galleries just throughout its history, like Bill Creek Allen had his space there. Um, Icosa Collective is still there. Ivester Contemporary is there. Um so for big medium to kind of be like, okay, we're piecing out of this and relocating and especially moving pretty far south, like they're outside of the uh, 71 freeway south of town, like there's not a whole lot of other art things where they are now. Um, so this is a pretty bold choice. Um, Jessica's, you're going to be writing about this, so we're going to figure out whether this is um, a semi-permanent space or whether they're just doing some pop-ups, but uh, keep your eyes out for that. Right. And also at around the same time, uh, Coco Trevino, who has been the director of programming at Big Medium and curator at Big Medium, um, has also opened her own space as well. Um, and this is called Projecto. Um, outside of that, uh, I, I can say I was at the opening for Throughline um last weekend and there was a lot of good energy people were very happy to see um a new space reemerge in isabella court like isabella court used to be the gallery building in houston or rather i, I guess we had two gallery buildings we had 4411 montrose which is where barbara davis anya tish um you know a, a few other rotating galleries have come through but that that was a gallery building and then 40 and then uh sorry isabella court had inman gallery devin borden gallery david shelton gallery a few other galleries rotated through but for the past couple of years it's just been carrie inman's space um, so to me, this signals a little bit of a reinvigoration of that building. Uh, the galleries, they're good spaces in that building. And I think everyone's kind of missed having it as um, 
another hub. I mean, like Carrie's been holding it down, but it kind of sucks when you don't have any neighbors to bounce programming off of or to kind of build crowds around. Um, so I'm excited for both Throughline and Carrie uh, to uh, work together on this. Um, let's see, uh, William, what have you seen that's kind of caught your eye recently? Yeah, this season, um, you know, it's fall, mid-fall, so I think everyone's really celebrating that we can kind of have gatherings again semi-reliably without having to deal with weather too much, and there's been a few kind of blockbuster one-day-only events, festivals, group shows um the dallas zine fest was last weekend on november 11th and saw what i would venture to guess is the largest vendor count they've had so far it's moved locations once again it was at the fair park visitors center this year last year it was at tractor beam i believe which is a design studio close by travis lamoth local artist and designer has been coordinating it uh, these past couple years and he's done an excellent job. There was a great variety in both the types of publishers, the types of artwork, um, the types of artists that were exhibiting. I met up with Sweet Pass Sculpture Park organizers, um, some individual artists, 777 Angel comes to mind. And even a literary publisher, Protean Magazine, here based in Dallas, um, that event was jam-packed. It was actually hard to get around, uh, which is not unusual for this event. It just seems to continue to grow in size, which is really exciting. Um, I saw also local artist S.M. Sands selling her prints. She does, she has kind of a a signature stylistic figure that she draws and illustrates um, both at like the print scale and in murals. And she said that by the time I had visited her easily halfway through the event, she said she had sold out of three things. Um, and that's, you know, any artist listening will know that's a great sign. <laughs> yeah. Well, and by the time that, any of our listeners will hear this uh, zine fest Houston will have happened also, which I'm really looking forward to. And I, I think, you know, especially kind of coming out of COVID, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of crossover between these zine and self publisher events across Texas. I'm, de- I'm glad that uh, I feel like maybe I just didn't know about it that much, but maybe like, eight or 10 years ago, I wasn't as in tune to Dallas's zine scene, or it was kind of run by like one or two people. Um, Whereas in Houston, it's always been a little more of a collective effort. So I'm I'm glad to hear that Dallas's zine fest is kind of gaining some momentum and becoming more and more popular, both on the vendor and the visitor side. Yeah, I mean, you make an interesting point, Brandon, we're facing the 30th year of Houston zine fest 
this year. So, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, like that's that's a long time for like an independent, self-run thing that doesn't have an actual staff to stick around and be successful. So, by comparison, Dallas Zine Fest is maybe it's younger. It might even be smaller. I'm not sure. I haven't visited the Houston Zine Fest as of yet, but it's just. Um, it's just really exciting to see the the Dallas boom and bust cycle can really can be quite extreme. There can be years where um, we just talked about the through line collective opening in a building that has a storied history. Um, there can be years where either a collective or a site or sort of a loose art scene can really explode. And then, you know, at the drop of a hat, people can move away vendors can dry up uh buyers can dry up so it's just it's really nice to see this one individual event which doesn't have a particularly large exhibition footprint the rest of the year um i think that's what kind of stumps me is that i don't know how people are finding out about this thing that doesn't necessarily have like a dedicated group of people that are promoting or even really working together the rest of the year. Um, But I guess it just goes to show there's a lot of energy in Dallas right now. What about you, Jessica? Uh, You've been traveling a little bit. You were in Abilene recently, but what either up there or anywhere else you've been has kind of stuck out over the past couple months? Yeah, um, Abilene was a great trip this past weekend or so. I was really excited to see their exhibition Witness which focuses on Black artists in Texas, uh, past and present. I got to walk around the exhibition with the curator, Judy Tedford Deaton, um, and it was really just fascinating to hear from her about the process of putting this show together. It's a show that has been in the works for four years, um, and most of the pieces in the show are from private collections, which means that they've rarely been seen in public. So pretty fantastic show. And um, every time that I've spoken with somebody about it here in North Texas, they've said, really, that show in Abilene? Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, there is kind of this assumption that a show like this um, that's really rooted in the work of John Biggers um, and then also looks at some of his uh, students that he taught and then further generations. I think there's this assumption that a show like this would have happened in Houston first. Um, and I was curious, Brandon, is has something like this happened in Houston? What's kind of the history of this type of show? There have been different um, institutions that have explored it in different ways. Like maybe, oh, geez, six or seven years ago, there was a show of um, works by... Uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't quote me explicitly, but there were, um, there was a show of works, I believe by black artists from the collection of the MFAH. And, uh, in part because, I mean, Biggers was such a strong presence of the Houston scene. You know, it wasn't a show that was explicitly trying to trace this line, but because it's Houston's Museum of Record and work by black artists from the museum's collection, there definitely was that local slant to it. Um, there have been other 
shows that have kind of done this, but I feel like what's unique about the Grace Museum show, which is why we put it in our uh, fall preview, actually, is that this is a very unique group of artists who I feel like I've never seen together on a bill in a group show before, Um, in part because... I feel like a lot of times if there's a show about John Biggers, it's just tracing John Biggers' impact in Houston. And it's kind of not considering the wider touch that he had in the other areas of Texas. Uh, Because, I mean, he was the premier black artist teaching at the premier black art school. Um, And even if people were not his students, they obviously knew about his work and picked up on it and were influenced him just from the very existence of him and his work and it being so prevalent. Um, So I think that's, I I think that's where this show is different. And maybe because of that, it almost kind of makes sense to me that it would happen at a place like the grace, you know, it's, it, it takes, it sometimes takes a place outside of um, the, that's outside of the more myopic view to really kind of put pieces together like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it was nice to see this show paired alongside with an exhibition of early Hudnall Jr.'s uh, photographs, many of which have been on view recently, like at um, Photographs Do Not Bend Gallery, um, had an exhibition of his work uh, just following the exhibition of his work, I think, in Houston, at Art League Houston, as he was... Yeah, he won, of, he won one of Art League's awards uh, a year ago, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get a chance to see those other shows, but I was hoping to, and and it was nice to see them, to see his works at the Grace, um, in conversation with, um, these other artists. You also visited the Center for Contemporary Arts Abilene, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a great space. I'm, I'm working on a piece to kind of, um, share a little bit more about the studio spaces there. You know, we were talking earlier about, um, about gallery spaces that also function as studio spaces and gathering spaces for artists. And this is exactly that in Abilene, and it's been around for a long time. Uh, I think this organization has been around for about 40 years, and along with having great gallery spaces, um, they have you know two downstairs, wait, three downstairs spaces and, and a large gallery space upstairs as well. They have about 10 artist studios um, that are really affordably priced and... It's an opportunity for local artists to have a dedicated, very high quality space to do their work. I had a really great time walking through it when I was in town, maybe oh, a month and a half ago at this point. And I I thought the same. I feel like I, I had maybe dropped in before, but I, I didn't really get a full sense of what that building is. You know, it's right in downtown Abilene, a stone's throw from the grace. Like it's, it's a great building, a great space. And it's just, uh, you can tell that it's the hub of the city's art community. Right. I believe, uh, the story is that, you know, when the, when the Center for Contemporary Arts opened, downtown was really a ghost town still. And so it was a big part of the revitalization of downtown Abilene um, has been an anchor there for a long time. Um, and as you mentioned, the Grace is just down the street. And then right across the street is Jody Klotz Fine Art as well. So it is this kind of trifecta of these great art spaces in Abilene. 
Okay, so one of the great things about traveling for a glass tire is getting to see things outside of North Texas, and it was great to be in Abilene recently, but it also means that sometimes I have to miss things that are happening in Dallas and Fort Worth, and so I was sad to miss the opening for Refer to Figure 361 at the Belmont Hotel. It's a group of students from the University of North Texas. Um and I follow some of them on Instagram. It looks like they're doing really cool and interesting things, and they've got a lot of energy. Uh, William, I think you made it to that show. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I was able to catch a second reception um, in the first weekend of the the first opening weekend, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's a group show of CVAD students. That's the College of Visual Arts and Design uh, at UNT in Denton. And the artists, Hannah Baskin, Aaliyah Sidonia, and Jose Vasquez Ramirez are all primarily showing paintings. Um, a lot of it is figurative work. It's semi-realistic. It's a little fuzzy at the same time. And each of them is kind of doing something a little different. Hannah Baskin's work is and Aaliyah Sidonia's work are both kind of focusing on their internal identity. Um, Hannah Baskin has some parallel bodies of work that are not painting their performance and video. And then Jose Vasquez Ramirez has paintings that are of figures in his family. He's also done a few paintings of day laborers that are congregating outside an area in Denton um, that was like designated for them. He also incorporates concrete uh, in a pretty interesting way. He will obscure the painting in concrete and then do a kind of performance event where the concrete is removed in various methods. The ones I thought were the most intriguing were the paintings he called pull tab paintings, which had uh, black plastic or Tyvek underneath the concrete. So it's you pull that and it reveals um, the painting from under the concrete. The underlying conditions of this exhibition are that the Belmont Hotel, also on the west side of town in Dallas, is not currently operating and has not been uh, basically since the pandemic, I believe. So I know that artists have been hanging out there, which is really cool. It reminds me of like when I moved to Dallas, that was kind of how things were. A lot of people were managing their practice by using kind of like pro bono space that was unwanted or unneeded at the time. Um, the conditions of the like economic and housing conditions of 2023 make it kind of remarkable that this beautiful Hollywood Hills style hotel is just being made available exclusively for creative purposes. Is the work, William, is it like hung in a lobby? Is it like throughout hotel rooms, almost like a hotel art fair? What's kind of like, what's this show, like the concept of it like that? Yeah, it sort of starts in discrete hotel rooms that uh, lead, the rooms are not accessible from each other. You have to walk in and out. But pretty soon after, you follow through to a hallway that leads to the lobby. Um, and if you've ever been to like 
a Dallas Art Fair after party at the Belmont Hotel, you'll know exactly where I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, it's a little of both, actually. And given that, you know, no one's living there right now, I guess they have the freedom to use all of those spaces, um, not just reserve a couple of rooms to exhibit in. I should say, because of the nature of this building, you know, um, since it's not in operation, it's curated by Jillian Wendell, and she is the point of contact for accessing the exhibition. Yeah. And William, um, I feel like we'd be remiss to not touch on the vignette art fair also, which you recently wrote about for us. Right. Yeah. This is kind of the continuing theme of the exhibitions and events I've seen this season, which uh, some of them have not been open for several weeks. They're kind of short run or limited access. So Texas Vignette ran a couple weekends ago for three days, two nights, something like that. Um, This is an annual program that has been showing in Dallas for five or six years at this point. And they have also moved venues. They're at Dallas Market Hall for the second year now. Um, I think several people would agree with me that I kind of prefer or enjoy this current venue they've chosen. It's all white. It's sort of mid-century, brutalist, concrete. It's very Dallas. The venue itself is less intrusive and distracting than the Texas Women's Museum, which is where they, I think that was the first venue they ever held it at over in Fair Park, um, which this museum, for anyone that hasn't ever been, it's like a defunct women's museum, which there's there's a whole kind of <laughs> um, political uh, irony and undertone of hosting an art fair in a, in a place like this, but it's, it's almost like a science museum that's been pulled apart. It's like cables were coming out of the walls. Like the building itself was almost kind of ruin porn. Um, ruin is maybe too strong a word. It's not like the walls were falling down. Um, but the building because of that wasn't an amazing place to see an art fair, but at the same time it made the building almost kind of was more interesting in some ways than some of the art that was put in it. So yeah, this is probably a, maybe if less interesting, better choice for, for them to focus on the art at least. Right. I mean, fair park oozes with character and architectural charm, but unfortunately it, there's a lot of buildings that have been left in disrepair by the city, um, which is still kind of unclear to me, which doesn't really make it any more excusable. It's kind of sad. Uh, But yes, Brandon, you're right. This venue, Dallas Market Hall, it's like a big square, reasonable height ceilings. Everything's white. You just got to throw up some movable walls, Um, It's literally a venue for conventions and trade shows. I think curator Emily Edwards did a good job of making sure everything had ample wall space. Um, The lighting was super even, super bright. That's another thing to compare it to against uh, the Texas Women's Museum iteration of the art fair. There were a couple dozen artists locally. I think the farthest uh, regional identification for an artist I saw in 
the program was an artist from Nacogdoches. Everyone else is pretty firmly North Texas. And a lot of names that glass tire readers would know, like Ariel Davis, Julie Liversat, Tina B. Medina, uh, Candace Hicks, mostly fairly established artists, even for early career artists. They're people that you might know or know have sold in the past. Um, this year, they made sure to, they called it, they said they were providing a online sales platform. It seems to be a Shopify account that you can access through the Texas Vignette website. I actually checked after Vignette was closed and you can still view artwork and I think you can possibly still purchase. Um, And it just struck me that that seems to be kind of like a new standard in this kind of grassroots arts or organizing and exhibiting. Not that any of the artists expressed to me that they were demanding or expecting it, but it seems like if you want to get people on board and feel legitimized, it helps to ensure that like we're going to curate the show, we're going to help put up the show, and then we're going to make sure that you have a link to give to people that they can purchase it through. So it's all kind of seamless. I feel like that's a change that's been made also just in the past three, four years. Like when COVID made everybody have to put artworks online and subsequently like when COVID made art fairs have to put prices online, um, it kind of made everyone just go, oh, we can do this and it's not the end of the world or we can even just sell to someone that we don't exactly know who it is and... You know, that's, of course, this this art fair, it's not like they're selling $100,000 paintings, but the same idea kind of permeates and trickles down. It's interesting to see the things that have, yeah, trickled down or stuck from the pandemic. It it may still be too early to say um, which of the trends from the pandemic are going to continue on more or less forever. But this is one of those things that seems like people are very comfortable, unfazed. Um, They don't even seem to associate it with the recent past anymore. It's just like you want to put JPEGs and prices on a website because that's just going to like spread farther, like how the exhibition can reach people um, and be sold, of course. I think about it too, kind of like exhibition catalogs, right? Like, If you can see the exhibition, you can be there in person. That's great. But also the exhibition catalog lives long past the time frame of the exhibition. And so in that way, these kinds of things online also continue to live beyond, especially for something like Texas Vignette, especially for something like Texas Vignette, which was just a weekend long uh, fair. It's nice to be able to go back and revisit those works. Yeah, agreed. Uh, before we round up, I have two more things on my list. Um, one is I would be remiss not to mention a few great things that I've seen in Houston, like, uh, our midsize nonprofits in the city are kind of killing it. Uh, Project Row Houses opened the, Project Row Houses opened the Founders Round in which, um, all of the row houses are dedicated and feature work by uh, each of the space's founders, which is a really nice kind of uh, remembrance of Project Row House's history on its 30th anniversary. Um, 
Also, uh, I recently wrote about Diverse Works' Gift from the Bauer exhibition, which, um, by the time you listen to this, will have had its final weekend and its little closing reception. Uh, But it's a very well-put-together exhibition of outdoor sculptures um, about 40 minutes north of Houston. It really kind of takes a commitment to visit, but it's nice. This has also kind of been the fall of just Houston remembering its own art history, uh, as exemplified by a current show, current and upcoming show at the CAM, um, that PRH show. Um, And then also there's uh, just a really nice exhibition by Hannah Darboven at the Menil Drawing Institute, um, a really wonderful large scale installation. Uh, All of that considered. The other thing on my list was also... Um, talking about maybe some of the more major news that went maybe a little bit under the radar, which was Jeremy Strick's announcement that he's going to retire from the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas uh, in June of next year, 2024. Um, If you've ever been to the Nasher, you've probably seen the influence of the invisible hand of Jeremy just in that institution. Um, I feel like his ethos has really permeated the Nasher and made it what it is today. He's been there for 15 years. Um, Jessica, what was your reaction? You wrote this news for us, but what was your reaction when you saw that that was uh, on the horizon? Yeah, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways it's, it's not surprising. You know, we've kind of talked recently about how it feels like we're kind of at this like turning point where across uh, organizations and, and spaces across Texas, um, we're starting to see um, a certain generation kind of like retire or step back and, and new people come in uh, to lead. And so while it was not necessarily surprising, it is interesting to see what will happen next for the Nasher, who will come in and how that will affect uh, the organization and what they're able to do, like if they make any shifts um, and what those might be. Uh, because when you have somebody who's been in a position for over a decade, um, especially for a space like the Nasher, which has only been around for 20 years, Oh, so when you have somebody who's who's been there for so long in such a new organization, um, obviously it's this change will be pretty integral. Yeah, it's inherent that he has had such a presence in shaping the institution as it is. If the organization is 20 years old and he's been there for 15 of them, then, you know, you could kind of almost discount those first five years as the museum trying to figure out what it was and then jeremy came in and was able to shape it not to discount the uh, any former director of course but um if you talk to people around dallas you will hear i mean people say wonderful things about jeremy like i think he's brought a really calm but purposeful energy to the museum that kind of emanates to visitors like i always think that not only because of the building but because of the ethos and how it feels to visit the nasher is dallas's menil collection like it's small it's a little jewel box and it has that same thoughtfulness that doesn't come with some larger institutions partly because just the 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 purpose of the one institution versus another but partly because of the people who make it that way 
As a part of this discussion, I just want to mention a few shows that will be open uh, in Dallas to our listeners at the time of this publication. Um, Teresa Cromati has some beautiful, expressive, semi-figurative paintings at Turin in Oak Cliff uh, off of West Jefferson Boulevard. That closes December 16th. Chuck and George, beloved artist duo, have a retrospective at Row 2 Arts Tin District location in West Dallas. That will close November 25th. Um, speaking of the Nasher, both their Nasher Public Program and their main exhibition space have great shows. That's Linnea Glatt in the front gallery and then Groundswell uh, women land artists in the main space. Those close December 31st and January 7th, respectively. I have not yet seen J.C. Pace III's exhibition at Artspace 111. Those are kind of space age color studies coded in aluminum at Artspace 111, uh, and that will close February 3rd. And on that note, uh, as William just noted, there are always plenty of things going on, even as we venture into the holidays. So take a look at our event listings if you want to get out of your house and see some things. Uh, There's always news happening also. So follow our newswire and Jessica is keeping on top of that. And with that, uh, we hope you have a happy holiday if you are celebrating and take some time and go see some art. Go see some art. Go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.